Good morning, UAC. I'm so excited to be with you this morning to be able to share from the Word of God. I just want to thank Pastor Daniel um, for this opportunity to be able to share um, this morning. So let's just pray as we do start. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your Word today, through the story of this woman and the alabaster jar. In Jesus' name. Now, over the course of the past couple of months, we've been talking about the various stories of Jesus, about Jesus's experiences. Now, we've talked about the temptations of Jesus. We've talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000, about Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well, and so many more. And through these various gospel accounts, we can see that God's love story is woven throughout history. And today, we're gonna be exploring the story and the experience of Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman. As Joy read for us this morning, we are going to be diving into the account of Luke's uh, gospel in this story. So let's set the stage for this story. We start off um, with one of the Pharisees who's inviting Jesus to have dinner with him. And we're introduced to a couple of key characters. We have Jesus and the Pharisee. Now, who are these Pharisees? In the New Testament, the Pharisees are frequently referenced as uh, pious believers of God. And the term Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word perush, which means separated. Now, a lot of the times when we think of Pharisees in the Bible, we can see them as hyper-religious, legalistic, self-righteous hypocrites. They were the people who practiced righteousness on the outside, more concerned with the outward-facing appearance rather than their heart. And in our story, we see that this Pharisee invites Jesus to dine with him, and Jesus accepts this offer to go into the Pharisee's house and to eat with the Pharisee with the other guests. Now, this dinner invitation would have probably looked a little different than a dinner invitation extended today. You wouldn't perhaps typically invite others to listen in to the conversations that are happening in your house, Um, But some Bible historians suggest that in the Middle Eastern tradition at the time, these dinner parties, when they were hosted, such as the one by this Pharisee, they would be held in the open, where other individuals would come and go and listen in on the discussions that were happening at the table. Now, we don't know the reason why um, why Jesus was invited to the Pharisee's house, but perhaps he was invited to partake in this discussion that was happening. The talk of Jesus was surely going out throughout the town. And perhaps the Pharisee wanted to know, who is this Jesus? Was he a prophet? Was he a healer? Perhaps he heard of the various miracles that Jesus was doing, or maybe he even witnessed one of these miracles. And is Jesus really all that the people are saying that he is? The Pharisee's curiosity had been piqued. He wanted to meet Jesus. And when we first hear of this invitation, it seemingly seems innocent and well-intentioned. But we see later that this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, doesn't seem to concern himself too much with, with his guest that he invited. When Jesus willingly accepted the invitation and came to Simon's house, Simon neglected the common courtesies that were part of the Middle Eastern traditions to Jesus. It seems that he had been too busy greeting the other guests to notice that the most important guest was in his house. Now, as they are participating in this meal, in verse 37, we are introduced to a third key character, Verse 37 says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with perfume. Now we're never told of this woman's name, her age, or her history, or her background. The only descriptors that we have for her is that she's immoral, sinful, and she's a woman who's from that city. We often know people for so many different things, whether they're a pastor, doctor, scientist, engineer, their occupation, or perhaps it's for their behavior, they're responsible, they're fun-loving, they're intelligent, they're wise, they're kind. For this woman, though, she was known as sinful and immoral. 
and this reputation preceded her. Her sin, you see, was not private, but public, and a sin that gave her notoriety throughout the city. This woman, who was clearly not a part of Simon's elite household, had come to see Jesus. And perhaps she was standing in the corner of the room, listening and looking intently. Now, it was common for people at that time to listen to the conversations that were happening in the room, but for someone like her, someone with this reputation, perhaps not. A sinner in a Pharisee's home? We can speculate that as her reputation preceded her, surely people noticed her when she came into the room, instigating feelings of discomfort and unease. This woman did not come into the house empty-handed. She brought an alabaster jar filled with this expensive perfume. And this was not some cheap perfume. Bible scholars assume that this perfume was costly, likely worth a year's wages. And perhaps this perfume was a family heirloom of hers. This jar is made from alabaster, which is a hard stone found in Palestine and Israel. And it would have been used to preserve different sorts of precious oils. And in this case for her, perfume. Now the alabaster jar wasn't just significant because of its high cost. It was also of value because of its use. In those times, Bible scholars tell us that when a girl or woman reached the age of marriage, her family would purchase and give her this flask and fill it with this precious oil. Some Bible scholars said that this would be a symbol of her dowry. When a man asked to marry her, she would then break it at his feet, anointing him with the oil. As you can see, this alabaster jar was of such high importance, both financially and socially. Holding this woman's future, holding her hopes, holding her dreams. And it was this that she brought to Simon's house. The alabaster jar was worth such high value and such high significance. It signified her all. Can I ask you to please pause for a second? Imagine yourself seated in that room. You gather around the table, you're hungry, you're ready to take part in that delicious meal which is laid out on the table, and a woman enters the room. Feeling a little bit uncomfortable, thinking to yourself, why is she here? This is not just any woman. You know who she is. And she certainly doesn't belong here. You know that she's a sinner in Simon the Pharisee's house. But she doesn't seem to be doing anything. She's there in the corner, listening and looking. And so you're hungry and you start to eat and you're engaging in conversation with the people at your table you're busy eating and chatting away that you don't notice her slip behind the table where Jesus was reclining. You don't notice her kneeling at his feet. And then all of a sudden, as you're mid-bite, your eyes turn to Jesus and you freeze. In an instant, the room is filled with a sweet and strong aroma. Where is it coming from? And your eyes turn to Jesus' feet. There at Jesus' feet, you see this woman had broken her alabaster jar, anointing Jesus' feet with the oil. The alabaster jar that was worth a year's wages, the alabaster jar signifying her hopes, her dreams, her future. This alabaster jar, she broke at Jesus' feet. Now imagine when this was all happening, there was dismay, confusion, and whisperings that were spread throughout the room. This woman was known for being immoral. She was known for being a sinner. Why was she in Simon's house? Why was she at the feet of Jesus? Why did she break the alabaster? And perhaps their confusion turned into alarm or dismay. Everyone that is, except Jesus. And in this story, in this experience, we are reminded that Jesus is the God who sees. 
We see the contrast highlighted between Simon's perceptions of this woman and Jesus's perceptions. When Simon saw the act of the woman, the Bible tells us that he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Simon looked upon her with eyes of contempt, disgust, her identity, a sinner. The labels piled on, worthless, unclean, appalling, impure, and so many more. Have you ever felt this way? Feeling the weight and the heaviness of labels that mar you one by one? You see, without uttering a word, Simon had defined this woman in his eyes. He judged her. She was unworthy of being in his house. She was certainly not welcome at his table because she indeed was a sinner. Simon saw this woman through human eyes. He saw the flaws, he saw the impurities, the records of wrong. Her deeds defined her, contained her, confined her, for in, her, in his eyes, this is who she was. She was an immoral sinner. Jesus also knew that this woman was a sinner. Being God, he would have known the events in her life. He would have known her past, her reputation, her deeds. He would have been no stranger to her sins, the sins that seemed to define her throughout the city. And yet, Jesus looked upon her with eyes of compassion. Jesus saw her heart. He saw her repentance. This woman broke her alabaster jar at Jesus's feet, anointing him, adoring him, exalting him, and weeping at his feet. This woman recognized that she was a sinner and that she had experienced this great love. And the breaking of this alabaster jar was an outpouring of that love. In Romans, it tells us that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And 1 John reminds us that if we say that we have no sin, that we deceive ourselves. This woman, she was not deceived. She knew in her heart that she was a sinner. And in this humility, she encountered Jesus's great love. And we can rest assured that the same God who saw this woman sees each of us. Just like Simon knew this woman's sin, Jesus knew her sin too. And Jesus knows all of our sins. It is no secret to him. And we can rest assured that if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, over and over again in Jesus's encounters, we see the stark difference of man seeing versus God seeing. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Kevin had preached about Jesus encountering the woman at the well. This woman was a Samaritan, despised by the Jews. And so she had to go to the well in the peak midday heat because she was a social outcast. The Jews saw this woman as a Samaritan looking down on her and her people, her own people had contempt in their eyes because of her sin. Now Jesus knew all these things and he conversed with her. He knew that she was currently not married. He knew that the man that she was with was not her husband and that she had had five husbands before then, which was not really of a culture back then. In the Bible, it tells us that um, she said that this man, Jesus, told her everything that she ever did. And as Jesus continued in this dialogue, which was extremely countercultural for this time for him to engage with her, Jesus not only told her who he was, but he offered her the living water. Jesus saw her worth and wanted to engage her when no one else did. And we can rest assured 
that he sees our worth too. Last week, Pastor Daniel preached about the demoniac. This man was homeless, he was naked, he was possessed by demons. He no longer even lived in the city, but ran around through the tombs. This man certainly was not included in society at the time. He was unclean, but even so, Jesus went. He delivered this man and he disrupted the status quo. God did not see this man through the same lens that society did. In the story of the lepers, they too were unclean. Society viewed them as the outcast, the untouchables, the castaways. And in that time, touching lepers was unheard of. Yet Jesus saw them through the eyes of God. While society viewed lepers as excluded, Jesus saw them as included, as a part of God's kingdom. And so Jesus touched the man and he was healed and glory was given to God. And in the same way, Jesus sees the marginalized today and calls them included. He invites them to be part of his family. Now, here we've talked about a few encounters with Jesus, but right from the start, right at the beginning of God's love story to us, we can appreciate that God is the God who sees, both yesterday, today, and forever. And in the Bible, we are introduced to Elroy, the God who sees me. We're introduced to this early on in the book of Genesis. In the first book, in chapter 16, we are introduced to Hagar. And Hagar, she's a maidservant of Abram and Sarai. And God had called Abram to leave his homeland. And he told him and promised him that he would give him descendants and that they would be a blessing to the whole world. And in Abram and Sarai's waiting, they doubted. Would God be faithful in providing children to them? And so Sarai gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. And Hagar became pregnant. And during her pregnancy, Hagar was so maliciously mistreated by her mistress, so much so that she had to flee. This wouldn't have been easy for Hagar to flee without shelter, to flee without security. Yet her deep desperation necessitated that she leaves these things behind. And so she did. I imagine she was in much anguish as she left her mistress and the family, feeling unloved, lonely, scared, rejected, and outcast. What was she to do not only for herself, but also her unborn baby? And the Bible tells us in Genesis 16, verses seven to 11. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. The Lord saw Hagar, even when Abram and Sarai did not. They didn't see Hagar's value. They cast her out of her, their house. but God met Hagar in the desert as she was fleeing. He had seen the abuse and heard her cries in desperation. When Hagar felt invisible and forgotten by everyone around her, the Lord said that he saw her plight and he answered. And in verse 13, it tells us, thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. 
she also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? And Hagar returned to Sarai, her mistress, and she gave birth to Ishmael, her son. God saw Hagar and Jesus saw the unnamed woman. Despite the labels and the perceptions of others, God saw their hearts. He knew their circumstances. He knew the pain, the anguish, the shame, the desperation, and the cries. Perhaps you've wondered, does God see me? Does God care for me? And the answer is a resounding yes. In the Bible, it reminds us of multiple times that we are known by God and that the God of the universe sees each one of us individually, not with eyes of judgment like Simon did, but with the eyes and heart of compassion, of love, of mercy, and of grace. When everyone was confused and alarmed at the actions of this unnamed woman, who was breaking her alabaster jar and anointing the feet of Jesus. Jesus was not. When it seemed that uh, to everyone else that she was invisible, God reminded Hagar that she was known and that she was loved. Throughout God's story, we continue to see how God chooses to see the unseen through the lens of compassion and of grace, recognizing their humanity, their dignity, their worth, and their value. The Bible tells us that every hair on our head is numbered. And in Psalm 139, it says that we are reminded that God's thoughts for us outnumber the grains of sand on earth. In John 10, we are reminded that as God's children, God knows each one of us, his sheep, and he calls us by name. And in Isaiah, it says, I have written your names on the palms of my hand. Jesus is the God who sees. Simon missed on seeing this unnamed woman. He defined her by her past, not recognizing her present, not recognizing this repentant heart with deep love for the Lord. And I am so grateful that this is not the way that our Lord sees us. He does not see us through the lens of human eyes, but through the lens of God. He sees us having worth, value, and importance. He knows and he recognizes our sins. And he made this way for us to have a relationship with Jesus. He sent down his son and through Jesus's death and resurrection, we can strongly holy believe, uh, hold to the belief that Jesus is the God who sees us. Now, in our story, uh, Jesus responds to Simon's thoughts about this woman by responding with a story. And after the story, Jesus had turned to the woman and looking at her, but speaking to Simon, Jesus said, look at this woman kneeling here. And what he was saying to Simon was, Simon, do you see this woman? No, Simon, not as physically present in your house, not as an unwelcome guest at your table, but Simon, do you see this woman's heart? Do you see her as someone full of worth, full of value? Jesus was telling Simon to look deeper. And Jesus goes on to compare and contrast the actions of Simon and this unnamed woman. He says, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. This woman's life had been transformed by Jesus. And although we are not given her backstory, this was not this woman's first interaction with Jesus, we can guess. She may have heard Jesus teach. She may have seen him perform a miracle. We don't know, but we do know that something had happened. 
and that she had been touched and transformed by the love of God. Simon neglected the common courtesies of his tradition. He did not extend Jesus the hospitality due a guest. He had neglected to wash the feet of his guest. He had neglected to greet him with a kiss and neglected to anoint his head with oil. The washing of the feet was not ceremonial, but it was a sign of common courtesy. The roads were dusty, they were dirty, and so people in that time wore sandals, and after a long day out, Jesus' feet would have been quite filthy. But the unwashed feet of Jesus did not stop this woman from kissing the feet of Jesus. It did not stop her from wiping her hair at his feet. And though her alabaster jar is so precious and costly, holding her financial and social security, holding her all, this did not stop her from anointing his feet with perfume. And why? because her life had been transformed. Whether from a distance or whether from a close encounter with Jesus, her life had been touched. She had seen God evident in her own life, in her own situation. She had encountered the Lord and this had changed her forever. Once bound in sin, now free. And so possibly she had overheard that Jesus was going to be a guest at this dinner party. And so she came. She knew she would have been an unwelcome guest. She was known as an immoral woman, a sinner, but that did not stop her. She would have seen the sneers and the snickers as she entered into the room. Thoughts racing through the people's head. Why is this sinner coming to the house of Pharisee? But that did not stop her. Coming to Jesus' feet and breaking the alabaster jar at his feet, people would have thought her to be crazy but that did not stop her. Why? Because her life had been transformed. She was overwhelmed and overcome by the love of God. And this was an expression of her gratitude of that great love that was bestowed upon her. And Jesus, being the God who sees, knew just that. Simon did not see a life transformed. Simon was offended by this woman's presence. In his heart, he thought, who is this sinner who is touching Jesus? Surely if Jesus was a prophet, he would not let a sinner touch him. As a Pharisee, Simon would have been very well studied in the scriptures, proficient in practicing indeed the word of the Lord. And he would have devoted a significant portion of his time serving the Lord. And even so, he did not love God. The Bible tells us that this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This woman, her name unknown, but her reputation, an immoral sinner, experienced and encountered that love of God, the life-altering, revolutionary, and unconditional love of God, which transformed her from the inside out so much so that with deep gratitude and appreciation for Jesus, she poured out an offering at his feet. Have you experienced that transformational, life-changing love of Christ? In Ephesians, it tells us, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how deep, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The love of the Father is so wide, so long, so high, so deep. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be sent with Child Evangelism Fellowship as a summer missionary here in Ontario. Now, during one of my summers, I had the opportunity to spend some time with two pastors, a husband and a wife, and I was helping them run a VBS at their church that week. And during my time there, 
I got a chance to hear their story. One pastor, she grew up as a pastor's kid, so she was familiar with Christianity, she was familiar with the church, but hurts early on in her life changed her mindset against religion and church, resulting in a downward spiral. And she met her husband and then boyfriend during this time, and his background was vastly different from hers. During his stint in the army, he was beaten and bruised severely, so much so that he had three cracked ribs, a fractured eye socket, a dislocated jaw, and a broken shoulder. Vowing that he would never be treated like this again or endure that type of beating again, when he was released from the army, he decided to surround himself with the toughest people. And for a couple of decades, this couple was involved in outlaw, outlaw biker gangs. He was shot twice, stabbed twice, and survived five major gang wars. And in their gang, they lost 19 people to violence over the years. During their entire time in the gang, the wife's mother was praying for her daughter. She was praying for her daughter's partner and her daughter's friends, that they would experience the transformational love of Jesus. Now they not only quit the gang years later, but experienced and came to know that transformational love of Christ in their lives, that they started a church, and soon after that, they started the Hamilton Dream Center, right across the street from their church, which helps feed and clothe thousands of people in the Hamilton area. Their lives have been transformed through Christ from outlawed bikers to preachers, from hurting others to helping others. The same God who transformed the life of the woman in our story is the same God who transformed the lives of these two pastors, using them to be a blessing to, in the lives of so many others. And this is the same God who transforms our lives too. In the Bible, we encounter many individuals who are transformed by the love of Jesus. During Jesus's ministry here on earth, we meet Zacchaeus. And he's known for his stature. He's known as being short, but also for his occupation. He was the chief tax collector. In biblical times, the tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman Empire. And as such, they were looked down upon with dismay and disdain. It was quite common knowledge that these tax collectors were cheats, skimming, and swindling the people. They didn't fully fit in with the Romans. They didn't fully fit in with the Jews. Unwanted in both groups. And Zacchaeus had heard that Jesus was in town and he wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. But the Bible tells us that he was too short. People didn't let him in through the crowd. And so he climbs up the sycamore tree and Jesus is passing through the town of Jericho where Zacchaeus is. And Jesus being God knows who Zacchaeus is. He knows that he's a tax collector, a sinner and a social pariah. But Jesus being the God who sees is intentionally countercultural in his interaction with Zacchaeus. Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus and tells Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to go to your house today. And so Zacchaeus quickly gets down and surely the others in the crowd, they're grumbling, upset. Doesn't Jesus know who Zacchaeus is? Doesn't Jesus know whose house he's invited himself to go into? Of course, Jesus knew. The Bible tells us about Zacchaeus' transformation from the Lord. It tells us, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Zacchaeus' life had been transformed. He had been a cheat, 
a swindler, entitled and selfish, feeling ostracized by his own community, not knowing where he belonged. And hearing of Jesus coming to town, he came to get a glimpse and Jesus saw Zacchaeus, knew him by name, invited himself over, and this was life-changing for Zacchaeus. During this encounter, his life had been transformed, his heart overflowing with joy, knowing that he was loved and known. Jesus not only transformed Zacchaeus' heart, but as a result of his transformed heart, Zacchaeus' behavior had changed. He knew what he had done in the past was wrong. He knew that, and so what happened was that he repaid these individuals he had cheated from, and he did so fourfold. Even more, he had gone from seeing only himself now to seeing others, seeing his neighbors, vowing to give half of his wealth to the poor. Zacchaeus' life is not the only life we hear of being transformed by Jesus. We hear of so many others uh, whose lives are transformed, including Saul, the Pharisees whose name was changed to Paul after encountering Jesus on that road to Damascus. From persecuting Christians to writing many letters incorporated into our New Testament, we see the fruit of his transformation. And through these stories, we come to know Jesus as a God who sees and knows us intimately and the God who changes and transforms our life. Has your life been transformed by the power of Christ? Jesus saw and transformed Zacchaeus' life. Jesus saw and transformed Paul's life. Jesus saw and transformed this woman's life. And Jesus affirmed that she indeed was forgiven. The label of immoral and a sinner now no longer appropriate because her sins had been forgiven. As we talked about earlier in the passage, it says, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And responding to Simon's heart, Jesus shared with him a story. Then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled a larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Jesus had used a simple parable to illustrate the concept of forgiveness, to demonstrate to Simon the magnitude of what that forgiveness represented. While both Simon and the immoral woman stood as sinners before God, it was only the woman who recognized her deep sin. She wept at her sin and then immensely showed devotion and adoration to Jesus because she was forgiven. You see, she was not forgiven because of this act of worship. She experienced forgiveness overwhelmingly so, and this act of worship was the outcome. Simon had not experienced the same forgiveness yet. Maybe he recognized that he had a few sins in his life. He wasn't perfect, but perhaps he thought to himself, surely I am better than this woman, a sinner. Jesus' question had caused him to think, and with some hesitation, he responds, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger death. Did Simon know that he too was in need of forgiveness? Later on in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Whether Simon acknowledged it or not, Simon too was in need of a savior. And a few verses later on in our story, Jesus continues speaking to Simon. He says, 
I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Although Jesus had already said that her sins were forgiven, in verse 48, he speaks to the woman directly. Your sins are forgiven. There was healing power in those words for her. As Jesus spoke those words, I imagine it caused a stir in the room. Who is this man who says that sins are forgiven? Who grants her forgiveness? Do you even know what she has done? Do you know her reputation? But what do those words mean to her? Although she had already received forgiveness, hearing those words from the Savior himself would have touched her life personally. Jesus had the authority to forgive. She was reminded in that experience that she was known by God, that she was loved by God, and that she was forgiven. Do you know that Jesus speaks those same words to you too? Sometimes we need to remember and to hear the healing power in those words. Throughout scripture, we are reminded that Jesus is the God who forgives, the God who knows the magnitude and the gravity of our sins and still chooses to show us his unmerited favor. The psalmist writes, he does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And the Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. The psalmist knew the sins of the people were many, far more than what God had punished them for. And in verses 11 to 14 of Psalm 103, we see God's tremendous love and mercy towards them. His love extends so high, as high as the heavens are above the earth. His love extends so wide that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we get to see God as a father as a parent who lovingly cares for their children. And so God cares for us too. Knowing who we are, knowing our strengths, knowing our weaknesses. Now the story of the prodigal son also found in Luke illustrates God's deep love and forgiveness for his children, even those who turn away. And we are introduced to this tale of two brothers. The younger brother, having all that he needs, demands that his father give him his inheritance while his father is still living. Taking this inheritance, he goes and he foolishly squanders and wastes it. He finds himself destitute in the middle of a famine that had swept over the land. From Luke 15, 15 to 16, we read, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man had become so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. He was driven to such desperation during the time as pigs were considered unclean by Jewish law. Even so, no one gave him anything. And in verse 17, it says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. Losing everything, now his dignity, he came to the realization, maybe I can go home. Even if I can't go home back as a son, surely even my father's servants get fed and I can ask to be a hired servant. And so we read in verse 20, so he returned home to his father, and while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. 
filled with love and compassion, he raised to his son, embraced him and kissed his son. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. What a beautiful image, this father embracing his son. And the story of the prodigal son, the son recognized his sin. He knew what he had done was wrong. The woman in our story too recognized her sin. Both were repentant, acknowledging their wrongdoing. And to both, immense mercy and forgiveness were extended. Did you know that Jesus extends that same mercy and grace to you? Now, as we conclude our time together today, I wanna share a personal story that um, has some personal significance for me because this is a story of a family friend um, who encountered Jesus, the God who sees, Jesus, the God who transforms, and Jesus, the God who forgives. Our family friend, who I'll call Liam for now, sent me his testimony and wrote these words, and I'll read them for you. He writes, I grew up in Canada and was raised in a Catholic home, but religion didn't mean much to me growing up. At the age of 12, my mother and grandfather decided to follow the Lord and were born again, which means God forgave them and gave them his Holy Spirit to help them live according to his ways. After that, our family started going to a Christian church where I eventually decided to accept Jesus into my heart. But I didn't understand the gospel message. I said I believed in Jesus, but I was still living for myself. I didn't repent of my sins. In high school, I started to drink alcohol, smoke, and as I got older, the addictions grew worse, drugs, sex, pornography, gambling, and so on. I've never been to jail, but I definitely deserved to for some of the things that I had done. For many years, I hid my addiction from my family. I felt condemned every time I sat at church with them, but I didn't wanna give up my addictions. The answer was Jesus, and he was staring me right in the face, but I didn't understand how to have a relationship with him. All I could see was my sin and my guilt, and I lived in the state of despair for many years. And in August 2010, when I went to a cottage with some friends for a weekend of partying, during this weekend, I met God through the thoughts that he brought to my mind. He was able to make it clear to me that this is not the life he wanted me to lead. At the same time, he told me that he loves me, that he had always been there with me in my life, and that he wanted me to repent and to follow him after that day. I was blown away by his gracious offer and that he would forgive me and love me after all I had done. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While God spoke to me that night, I didn't feel condemned like I did sitting in the church all those years. I knew that I was loved and that he wanted a relationship with me. I accepted his offer of forgiveness and love and put my faith in Jesus' sacrifice for me. So for the next few months, I was fired up about God, telling everyone I knew about my experience. But eventually, the excitement died down because I wasn't disciplined in my faith. I wasn't reading his word or spending time with him in prayer. I continued to make some poor choices, hung out with old friends I shouldn't have been avoiding at that time, and went back to my old ways. But praise God that he was gracious to me and didn't abandon me. He waited for me to come to the end of myself and to recognize that he is more satisfying than anything that the world has to offer. He brought me to repentance again, which means turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. After coming out of my relapse, I told myself I never wanted to be enslaved to drugs and alcohol again. Romans 6, 16 says that we become a slave of the thing we choose to obey. If we choose sin, it will enslave us. 
My mom suggested that I look into Teen Challenge, a Christian drug and alcohol rehab program. I entered the program in October 2011. The teaching and counseling I received at Teen, uh, Teen Challenge helped me to overcome the addictions through Jesus Christ. God taught me there what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, but it didn't happen overnight. I came to the program really excited and ready to change, but I faced many psychological trials. I was hit with a lot of anxiety and depressive thoughts that led me to wonder whether God cared about me or if he was even there. Every day I woke up, I had to fight a battle in my mind, whether I would choose to believe and trust God or if I let those thoughts take control of my mind. Sometimes you just gotta push through and choose to believe God's word, even when it hurts. And during those tough months, I learned the important lesson of getting to know God through his word and through prayer. And God ignited a passion in me to read my Bible more. I also learned how to be content with whatever circumstance I found myself in. So in the 12 years since I put my faith in Jesus, God continues to teach me. I still make mistakes, but he is gracious. And I grow more and more in holiness. He's blessed me with a wife and three kids. He's given me a purpose to serve him overseas. Just like Jesus saw the woman in our story, God saw Liam. He saw him as someone of value, someone of significance, and someone whom he loved so dearly. Just as Jesus had transformed this woman's life, he had transformed Liam's life, who was able to now use his story to share the love of Jesus overseas. And just as God had forgiven this woman and wiped her slate clean, God did the same for Liam. And Jesus can do the same for you too. He is the God who sees and knows the uniqueness of your situation. Not one thing happens without him knowing. He is a God who transforms lives through his spirit, using them for his glory, and he is a God who forgives. Though our sins be red as scarlet, he washes them white as snow. Have you encountered Jesus, the God who sees, the God who transforms, and the God who forgives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of the woman and the alabaster jar. We thank you, God, that you saw her not the way society did, but Lord, you saw her through your eyes with eyes of compassion and mercy and grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for her transformed life. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you forgave her. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever the God who saw, transformed, and forgave this woman, the God who does it today for us. Help us to know this personally. Father, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would transform our lives. Lift us all up into your hands. In Jesus' most precious and mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.